If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. You're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the second of our September 2011 editions. BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and by subscription. Visit historyextra.com for more information or follow us at twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up, we have... Missionaries definitely felt themselves to be superior to indigenous people. That was Emily Manctelow on Britain's imperial missionaries. And Free Dairy Corner represents that side of Northern Ireland that did not see itself as British and yet contributes fundamentally to British history. That was Claire Fitzpatrick on Free Dairy Corner. Our first interview this week is with Dr Emily Mangtelow of the University of Exeter. She's written a fascinating piece in the September issue of BBC History magazine about the way that Britain's Christian missionaries in the 18th and 19th centuries interacted with the people they were tasked with introducing to God. The magazine's deputy editor, Rob Attar, talked to her. We're talking here about specifically British evangelical missionaries of the 18th and 19th centuries. What was different about them than previous missionaries? So the main predecessors to these evangelical missionaries at the end of the 18th and early 19th century, uh, the, there are two main differences. First of all, they're not Catholic, which is obviously the, the main difference between 
most of the Christian mission that has occurred since the birth of Christianity, starting with St. Paul most famously. Uh, and second of all, they're not Anglican, which since the turn of the 18th century, when the Society for the, Prop for the Promotion of Christian Knowledge was founded, 1699, and the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in 1701. So those were both Anglican missionaries that differed markedly from the Catholic predecessors because whereas Catholic, Catholics could be ordered by papal authority out into the missionary world to undertake their mission, pri primarily through religious orders, Anglican missions uh, or the leaders of Anglican missions didn't quite have the same level of authority and relied to some degree on volunteers and volunteering. At the same time, the SPCK and the SPG, which I've just talked about, they were much more interested in bringing Christianity to colonial communities, that is, white settlers or white uh, colonial officers or administrators in India, North America. At the turn of the 18th and 19th century, you get, or the end of the 18th century, you get the evangelical revival, which completely changes the nature of Christian mission from this earlier sense of uh, mission to white colonial communities. The emphasis now is on bringing Christianity to uh, non-white so-called heathen populations. And this is very much an evangelically inspired uh, movement which is uh, you know, moved by the gospel in a much more grassroots way. Uh, that comes out in the class origins of the recruits, who tend to be much more working class, uh, and based more on the power, the power of the word, and the example of Christian piety in its agents. So these missionaries are completely separate from Anglicans and Catholics. They're like a whole new breed. They, they're, so they're completely... Um, in some ways a completely new breed of Christian mission. But in other ways they do retain connections with the old, older Anglican way of mission, uh, particularly in the fact that they're often in the colonial space, even if they're now looking towards indigenous communities rather than colonial communities. And the Church Missionary Society, which was founded in 1799, is Anglican, but it's a more evangelically inspired Anglicanism than its predecessors, the SPG and the SPCK. And so around this time, which we're talking about, kind of Georgian, Victorian time, are, mo are the majority of British missionaries these evangelical types? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's something like 10,000 Christian missionaries dispatched by the various evangelical missionary societies across the course of the 19th century. And uh, around 1,300 of them are sent by the London Missionary Society, which is who I talk about in the article. So when we have the, the idea, traditional idea or stereotypical idea of a missionary of this period, it probably is an evangelical Absolutely, Absolutely, yes. So the stereotypical idea of an evangelical missionary is someone stuffed into a starch shirt and yeah. waistcoat um, in the middle of the African hinterland, boiling up in their ridiculously inappropriate clothing, um, no dancing, no drinking, very strict, very severe. That is, of course, a stereotype, but it is based on um, the Brit British society's way of looking at evangelicals and non-conformist evangelicals in particular. And so how are these missions connected with the British Empire? Well, that is an incredibly contentious and fraught question, right. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, historians of Christian mission have been tussling with, um, well, since the 1970s, but really a question that was alive at the very time of the missions themselves. 
it essentially boils down, as historians are always want to say, uh, to definition and how you define imperialism. When you're thinking about imperialism as a series of institutions, structures, power relationships, missionaries had an incredibly um, tense relationship with those, with those structures of British imperialism in the 19th century and 20th. They could sometimes be advocates for indigenous peoples against colonialism's creeping uh, power structures into their everyday lives. Uh, they could sometimes find in imperialism an ally in their own objective, which of course was Christian conversion, but never quite so simple. It also was to do with so-called raising people up to Western civilization. Christian communities were often uh, based on minorities um, within indigenous communities, and so were sometimes persecuted. So missionaries often turned to imperial authorities to protect their fledgling Christian communities. If you're, so that's, that's missionaries' relationship with the formal structures of imperialism. And there's definitely some change over time there as well, obviously, as the empire becomes more powerful and becomes um, more structural. Uh, the relationship with missions also changes. Missions in themselves become more structural or more institutional as they move away from the peripatetic uh, evangelist preaching in the wilderness towards the foundation of schools, hospitals, orphanages. Um, once that happens, they start to become or can, can start to be seen as something of an arm of the state in that the colonial state was notoriously unwilling to develop colonies and to plug the money into infrastructures that were needed. Missionaries could do that for free as far as the colonial state was concerned as it was based on private charity and philanthropic giving in Britain. So in other words, why build a colonial hospital when you have a mission hospital that will do the work for you? That's when the lines really start to blur between missionaries and imperial agents. Nonetheless, as I've described, that's a change over time. Yeah. If you start thinking about the British Empire as a cultural phenomenon that wants to change the everyday life of people, that wants to change the way they live, that wants to uh, destroy or get rid of indigenous customs, um, particularly things like polygamy, mm. then the line gets even more blurry because missionaries were very much involved in that, what you might call the colonial project rather than imperial project. If we think of imperialism as infrastructures and institutions and colonialism as a cultural phenomenon. And so missionaries were very much implicated in this um, way of, of trying to change indigenous cultures into something that fitted their own ideals of Christian modernity. And did the, the empire facilitate them going to certain places? Was it easier for a British missionary to go to India, for example, than China or something because of the imperial links with that? Yeah, Christian missions um, happen all over the globe in both imperial and non-imperial um, spaces. To some degree, there's a practical element um, to going to a, a, a colonial space. For example, there'll be ships already going there that you can go on. Um, there'll be people already there that you can connect with. There might be a European community that you can become a part of that will just provide the basic things you need for building your mission station from you know, literally bricks and mortar up to the supplies, medicines, all those sorts of things that your mission station and institutions might need. However, in the early 19th century, 
Imperial uh, administrators and colonial administrators were not always keen to have missionaries around, particularly in India. So in fact, missionaries are outlawed from India um, until 1813 and then again in the 1830s um, because it was believed that they would rile up the natives, to use a, a phrase that they would have used at the time. Um, the, the theory was that intervention into indigenous culture and customs would only cause problems for British imperialism, which at this point is based mostly on trade um, and economic supremacy. As you have the uh, calls for abolition of the slave trade happening, evangelicalism's um, cultural currency is on the rise. And particularly with the enfranchisement of the middle classes who were more evangelical, if you like, than, um, than the upper classes who were more established Anglican, uh, who had a more established Anglican culture. Um, as that happens, they start to lobby for entry to imperial places, such as India, famously. Mm. And the rules are gradually relaxed in 1813 and the 1830s so that missions can start going. So it's very, it's very mixed. It depends on the place. The Caribbean is another place where missionaries are seen as a problem. They're trying to Christianise the slaves. And once slaves become Christianised, it's almost impossible to continue to see them as property and not humans. Once you give them a soul, it's very difficult to keep them in the in the kind of you know slavery abject slavery conditions that the colonial state is interested in keeping them in so uh, missionaries there again have a very difficult relationship with the colonial state and some of them are expelled some of them are even arrested um, when the slaves rebel um, in 1823 in Demerara for example John Smith who's a missionary with the London Missionary Society was arrested for inciting rebellion and actually died in prison after being found guilty although um, he was pardoned by the king but he died before he found that out unfortunately for him so that's an interesting point then that I suppose missionaries, if they are Christianising people around the world, that must make it hard for the British Empire to, to feel like we rule over these people. We're their masters if they have the same faith and if thereby in God's eyes they're equal. So that might in some way undermine the idea of empire. Yeah, it can do to some degree. I mean, hierarchy is baked into Christianity in some ways, so it's not necessarily mm. a deal-breaker. But you're absolutely right. Once, once you start... Um, allowing people to be three-dimensional human beings with a soul and a personal relationship to God, it can become more difficult to then subjugate them to the degree that some colonial states were interested in doing. Which is why missions had to be more universalist in their uh, viewpoint. That is to say, they couldn't deal in the same biological racisms that the colonial state was able to deal in to justify their existence. That doesn't mean that missionaries were never racist, they often were, but fundamentally they had to believe that all peoples were equal, it created equal by God and able to achieve the same level of civilization and of uh, Christianity relationship with God as anyone else. So that does have an implicit criticism of imperialism, which is why many missionaries were critics of imperialism. But as I said, it's, it's never quite so simple with the relationship between missions and empire. Actually, that was something I was coming on to, is how then did the missionaries view the native people they encountered? You're saying that they actually saw them often as equals. That was the theory. It's not right. always the practice. Uh, so missionaries had a complicated view of indigenous people. On the one hand, 
they had a more beneficial view of uh, indigenous people who had never been exposed to Christianity than, for example, colonial settlers who were living a debauched life despite their knowledge of Christianity. So, in other words, ignorance was bliss. If you knew about Christianity and had rejected it, that was a whole different sort of level of wrong, if you like, in the, yeah. in the missionary mind. Nonetheless, missionaries definitely felt themselves to be superior to indigenous people and as they went about so-called civilizing them and in other words making them conform to western standards of living norms behaviors so-called civilization they often still found ways of asserting their own superiority so the most famous case of this is simply that in mission institutions the white missionary was always in charge and uh, non-white or native assistants native catechists were always considered to be uh, were always the um, well exactly as I've just said the assistants yeah. in that process very rarely the leaders very rarely in charge missions were supposed to ultimately hand over authority to the local people and move on to somewhere new, to save some new souls somewhere else. But missionaries found it notoriously difficult to do that. Um, they'd lived somewhere maybe their whole life, they'd invested in the community, the language, the culture. Um, they had friends obviously there and family and they didn't necessarily want to leave and they didn't necessarily believe the people they had converted were good enough Christians for the, for the mission to be left in their hands. Clearly, this was based on their sense of European superiority as well as their personal connection to the mission. And, and it was a problem in that it caused resentment, of course, and, uh, in, and it stopped a form of indigenized Christianity evolving that would have probably been much more successful and integrated more fully into these local cultures and customs. And speaking about integration, something that is the main subject of your article is how some missionaries form relationships with the local people. What, I mean, how did that come about? So uh, at the beginning of the missionary, this evangelical missionary yeah, enterprise yeah. Uh, at the end of the 18th century, there are a few different types of evangelical society emerging. One of them is the voluntarist uh, evangelical nonconformist missionary society. The London Missionary Society and the Baptist Missionary Society are particular examples of that. Mm. The London Missionary Society, which this article that I've written is about, um, were very willing for their missionaries to intermarry into local communities. It was cheaper to start with because the missionaries weren't paid at this early point. Um, it was easier. It was more practical. The idea was that they and, and their wives would have a whole brood of uh, mixed-race children who would be taught both English and their indigenous language, who would be taught both indigenous culture and Western culture, and overarching all of this, the cohesive element would be Christianity. And then this strata of semi-native catechists, based on the family, would then spread Christianity from within the indigenous community itself. As I describe in the article, that harmonious vision, or that idealistic vision, um, couldn't last in the changing world that mission um, had entered at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, particularly in its interactions with the colonial cultures that were completely against any kind of racial integration of that level. While colonial settlers might have been happy to have uh, indigenous mistresses, anything that 
disrupted the power relations between them and the people so you know thought of as below them um, was considered to be dangerous and had to be stamped out and this idealistic vision of integration among missionary cultures couldn't quite survive within that climate. Most of these evangelical missionaries were they single men then? At the beginning, for the London Missionary Society, absolutely. The first fleet of missionaries they sent out had 30 people. Um, only six of them were married and only four of them were ordained. So it was very much a mission based on single male artisan piety. They were called godly mechanics at the time. They were carpenters, weavers, tailors, things like that. Um, unmarried so that they could marry into the local community uh, and unordained and just simply moved by the spirit. And would this work on both genders? Had a single female missionary gone out there, would, would it have been tolerated for her to marry a local man? Absolutely not. Really? That was a totally different proposition. And, of course, that's based on both highly racialised and highly gendered discourses that were in existence at this time. There were no single female missionaries at this very early stage right. in the evangelical missionary enterprise. That was just something that couldn't be accommodated within um, evangelical culture and the codes of respectability that were such an important part of that culture. Gradually that changes. From around the 1830s you start to get very small numbers of individual uh, single female missionaries um, who go out and from mid-century it starts to pick up speed um, so that by the end of the century you have huge numbers of single female missionaries um, and they're you know they create um, communities among themselves they uh, they do a lot of visitation of indigenous households of the sick their nurses their teachers their doctors even you know as you get later into the century um, and they're very important but at this early stage before they start really coming into the enterprise the female element here are missionary wives and missionary wives are also extremely important to mission once this integration, this ideal of integration has passed by about the 1820s, as I described in the article, the missionary wife, or more particularly the missionary couple, becomes the absolute foundation of evangelical mission, and the mission home becomes the bedrock institution of this endeavour. So after the early idea of um, the missionaries marrying local people had failed, from then on, well, the missionary society said, well, you have to go out as a man and wife, you can't go out as a single man, because... There could be bad consequences. Absolutely, yeah. So what I call pre-embarkation marriage becomes the absolute norm. And this is often a very pragmatic response um, to the needs of the mission field. So uh, a, a male missionary signs up with the missionary society. Three days before departure, he marries. Two days before departure, he's ordained. Day of rest, if you like. <laughs> and then off they go um, to their mission uh, for the rest of their lives often sometimes they came home um, for what was called furlough but uh, often they died in the field and uh, you know without wanting to put too fine a point on it were happy to do so that was their mission to be in the field um, and to work for the gospel and for God. And uh, yeah there was something else that you mentioned in the article was that one of the problems earlier with these single missionaries was that the w women they were marrying weren't always Christians they hadn't always managed to get them to convert first of all which meant that their marriages were not only mixed race, but also kind of mixed faith as well. Absolutely, and that was the problem. The LMS 
were very happy, as I've said, for their missionaries to marry indigenous women, but they had to be converted. That was an absolute must. There was no way around that question, that issue, um, because after all, it's the foundation of the whole process. The problem they came up against was that indigenous people weren't necessarily interested in converting. Um, and also the problem that you can't always convert people as quickly as they had rather optimistically envisaged. Mm. I think their absolute faith in the gospel blinded them to the sense in which these people weren't necessarily interested in their religion. They had their own customs and cultures. Uh, why should they uh, you know, band together with these slightly strange little white men who, <laughs> who had arrived uh, in their weird clothes and uh, with strange customs and, and their strange obsession with this book you know, that, that didn't mean much to them after all. Um, once that problem arises, there's no way out of it. Because unlike in the imperial world, missionaries can't just have uh, informal sexual relationships with the indigenous women. As I said, colonial administrators can do that as much as they like, but for, for a, a mission based on evangelicalism and the primacy of the Christian family, that's impossible. You can't do that. But of course, they've sent out these you know, 26 young male missionaries um, into an environment that seemed to be peculiarly sexualized, for example, in the mm. Pacific in particular. And really, it was, it was uh, naive in the extreme to imagine that their missionaries were not going to form relationships with these women, whether they were converted or not. This issue is they were too optimistic, thinking everyone would convert straight away, which did not happen throughout the history of Christian mission. And it was kind of complicated in the sense of the missionaries in the sense they probably would have often tried to marry the women they were having relationships with because they had this this Christian feeling that meant marriage was an important thing. So whereas the colonial people might just have a relationship with them, they'd actually try and marry them, which made the whole thing much more noticeable and was much harder to avoid. Absolutely. So the case in this article is of Thomas Lewis, who does exactly that. He, he genuinely seems to want to marry um, the woman uh, that he has formed a partnership with, but he's not allowed to do so because she won't convert. So he he marries her within his own mind and he goes to live with her and he wants to, you know, he says he wants to abide faithfully um, by her. He's not allowed to do so within the confines of his Christian community, so he's forced to leave that community with, obviously, terrible ramifications for his sense of himself and his soul, but also physical ramifications because he ends up dead uh, not long afterwards. And I guess, finally, could I just ask you how successful is it possible to judge how successful these evangelical missionaries were in what they were doing christian mission uh, as a whole is incredibly successful it's it's almost hard to to express how successful it is you only have to look at the modern demographics of christianity to see how successful it is the fact that uh, the majority of active Christians live in what we call the Global South, particularly Africa um, and South America, is eloquent testimony enough, enough. Nowadays you have what's called reverse missions, where you have missionaries coming from Africa to Europe to try and convert people to Christianity. While individual missions were not always very successful, and as I said, were certainly not successful at the beginning, it often was years and years of hard toil to really attract people to Christianity, particularly once you'd got past um, the dispossessed, who were more likely to convert because it conferred on them a social status that they didn't have in their indigenous communities. 
but over the, the tide of time, if you like, um, Christianity certainly has become a, a massive, or Christian mission has become a massive success. Um, and probably if those first missionaries could look at the state of Christianity today, well, they would be appalled at the state it is in Europe, but um, very pleased, I think, with the state it is in Africa, South America and Asia, even if it might be a little bit more um, free-flowing than they would perhaps have anticipated within their evangelical mindset. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. That was Emily Manxlow of the University of Exeter, and you can read her piece on the missionaries in the September issue of BBC History magazine. Next, we have an interview with Dr Claire Fitzpatrick of Plymouth University. I asked her to nominate a site for the BBC History magazine's 100 Places That Made Britain project. The idea was that I asked 100 historians to each nominate one place that can still be visited today, which has particular significance in Britain's history. Dr Fitzpatrick chose Free Derry Corner in the Bogside area of the city of Derry, Londonderry in Northern Ireland. This was an important place for the start of the Troubles in the late 1960s. Pressure mounted from Northern Ireland's Catholics during the 1960s for improved civil rights and in 1969 tension focused in the Bogside, which had long been a mostly Catholic part of the city, situated outside of the 17th century city walls. The Free Derry slogan was painted on the gable end of a house, and in August of that year, the Battle of the Bogside took place. Violence escalated in Northern Ireland after that, and on 30th of January 1972, the Bogside was the site of Bloody Sunday. I recorded the interview with Dr Fitzpatrick on 11th of August 2011, the day before the annual Apprentice Boys Parade in the city, during which some violence occurred. 
My first question to Dr Fitzpatrick was, why nominate Free Dairy Corner? Well, it was interesting because you asked me about um, Northern Ireland mm. and I think when I was thinking about it, to nominate something that made Britain is quite, is quite a contentious question in relation to Northern Ireland because of the fact that a, a rather significant minority don't consider themselves to be British. And Free Dairy Corner represented um, or represents and, and, and why I felt I should choose it, that side of of Northern Ireland that did not see itself as British and yet contributes fundamentally to British history in that it, it sparks or it's I suppose a symbol of resistance to British control in that part of Ireland. Um, so I felt it was quite significant if you're looking at Britain to look at pockets of Britain as so-called, uh, that don't perhaps identify themselves as British. To an extent, they were, I mean, Derry itself was a very contentious place, but the word Derry, the, the name Derry um, in, in, in the Irish is Dera. And when, of course, the, um, when it was established by the a London corporation, they changed the name in 1613 to London Derry. And even today, if you drive, say, from Belfast across to Derry, you'll see signs where the London is crossed out. And to me, that's just... Stroke City, it's stroke, called, isn't it? Yeah. Because you have to say Derry, Stroke, London Derry. Yeah, to, to, be the, yeah to, to be a liberal, the liberal position. But if you... Yeah, and it's a way of identifying, I suppose, a position, if you were to say one or the other. Okay. So just thinking about... So the, 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 the basis of this project is that you can go and visit places and kind of understand what's going on there. So, so I went there, went, went, to, went to Free Dairy Corner and went around the walls as well. Um, and, and it was a fascinating place, a really interesting place. Probably the place where history was at its rawest, I felt, from, from anywhere I visited around the country, which is no great surprise. Um, but, but certainly Free Dairy Corner now is, um, for want of a better word, a heritage attraction. You go there and there are coaches coming along, looking at the murals, looking at the monuments, looking at the, at the, at the, at the, the quite affecting museum that, that they've got there, the, the Free Dairy Corner Museum. Um, what's your view on that, as, as this becoming a heritage attraction now, given that there's still, there's still issues being worked through here, it's still a very live issue, though, this was some years ago where things were really um, at a peak there. What do you think about it becoming a heritage attraction now? I think there are a couple of issues here. I think Free Dairy Corner in itself and the bog side and the whole area is a site of its own, it sounds, historical memory. There is, and, and, and historians work on this idea of trauma insights so you get generations if you've actually seen people being killed people that you knew on particular sites they become embedded in your historical memory so i think for the people of the bog side and people of free dairy corner represents and to some extent those issues haven't gone away there's still it's a very um working class community a very um self-help sort of uh, there's a strong sense of self-help amongst people of, of this of this area, um, and certain issues still are still there to make free dairy 
a, a kind of at least a psychological separation. The other aspect, this sort of what they call tourist terrorist tourism, I'm I'm slightly I don't know. It's a, it's more uncomfortable. It's difficult because I suppose what's going to happen tomorrow, tomorrow is the 12th of August, which will be the Apprentice Boys March in, in Derry. That's all part of that. To some extent, you know, shouldn't people be allowed to commemorate their history? Shouldn't the Apprentice Boys March be allowed to go ahead to show the people, of the Protestant Unionist people, that this was a glorious battle in their history? Shouldn't 1916 Easter Rebellion marches take place? But in a city like dairy. Uh, the consequences of those in a normal sort of functioning society would be, you know, you just go and watch a parade. But in a city where there are political issues, there are still social concerns, they become more contentious. Um, with Free Dairy Corner and the museum, I think on one hand it's, it's very important because it has been the site of such atrocities if they, and such very important events in the in the integral history of, of the Northern Ireland troubles or war, whatever, then it, they must be commemorated. But um, it's when this commemoration becomes almost, a, well, it's politicised memory. You have instances of children saying, I remember these events, I wasn't even there. There's a famous statement, you know, that because children are learning, hearing these stories, that they'll tend to learn their history that way and then they're surrounded by images of that past. So I don't know, it's a difficult one. I'm not, I think it's a difficult one for someone who's not from the area as well to comment on because... Um, Objectively, if you look at it, you could say, well, how are you expected to sort of to, to move on if you've got these commemorations? But if you've grown up in that area, to some extent, you'd probably want to hang on to that. Last question. Um, as, a, as a historian working uh, on, on Irish history, on uh, it, it's such a contentious area. Mm -hmm. there's, there's so many, so many things that that you could say that would cause offence and trouble. So, how difficult is it to be a historian working that period? I mean, you, you you don't have those same issues if you're a historian of the medieval period or anything like that. So, how, what do you have to what do you have to keep in mind when you're when you're studying this period? It's interesting being an Australian. I'm not, obviously not Irish, so you have that uh, that detachment. Um, you have to understand tradition and how tradition develops. I think it's actually more difficult to some extent in, in teaching Irish history, uh, in teaching Irish history in an English or British university, um, to, to get across this, uh, this difference of identity, the notions of Irishness, Britishness, which I think we grapple with in Britain anyway itself. Um, you have to let the documents speak for themselves, obviously. And just as I always call it historical sensitivity to some extent, to try and see how, you know, operating in such contentious areas, um, you have to examine your own reactions to certain documents, to certain how you would feel. You have to examine yourself in, in context of that. But to have this, kind, yeah, I suppose, a historical sensitivity uh, to both traditions, and not just both traditions, because actually there are many traditions within, uh, within well, particularly in the period, the, the area I work in, and to just try and, and look at how 
situations are created and people's involvement or reactions to those situations, I suppose. That's interesting. So you have to be much more introspective and self-examining as a historian well, than, than you would if you were, say, a historian of, of, of Rome or something well, like that. Well, I don't that. know, though. Don't you think historians have to have historical sensitivity? I suppose, I just remember, I don't know if this is... I do remember when I was doing some oral interviews for work, and I remember uh, it was an old trade union activist who said to me, you know, they were hard, just be kind to us. We, they were hard times. I can remember, you know, and obviously you have to, that, 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 or to tell our voice in a, in a way that, um, and I suppose it, being an historian of Irish history of the modern period, you're limited as, as historians of the modern British period by, by, you know, files that are closed because people are still living. So you have to, so you're aware of that. Um, I also, the problem I find being an historian of, of Ireland is, an, is the historiographical debates overwhelm the history to some extent. I think when the troubles took, began, there was too much introspection of, of, of historians to try and apologise for for nineteen for Republican atrocities or whatever in or unionist atrocities and revise the period of history that I actually work on in the context of the troubles. And I'm uncomfortable with that in a way. Uh, I don't think you know, I, I don't think you know, if you're studying the nineteen twenties to some extent you should be concerned about the what's happened in, in, the, in the Troubles to see this sort of direct link between Irish republicanism, say, the 1920s to the 1980s. And I think that's a problem in Irish history, but I would imagine that's a problem in most historiographies. That was Claire Fitzpatrick of the University of Plymouth. The BBC History magazine book, 100 Places That Made Britain, is published by BBC Books and is on sale now. Do get in touch if you've got any comments on the podcast, particularly if you have any ideas on how we can improve it. Email your thoughts to podcast at historyextra.com or get in touch via twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. Next week, we'll be discussing Francis Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth I's security chief. You'd be ill-advised to miss it. between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.